All right, we are, we're going to be moving forward this morning in our study through the book of Acts. We're just really getting started in the book, but as you know, we've, we've been stuck in three verses for uh, several weeks now as we, we really uh, did a series of studies within a larger series, and that is uh, our focus on the ascension of Christ, and we spent eight weeks on that focus. I hope that study was a blessing for you and an encouragement for you, a strengthening of your perspective of the greatness of what I've described several times as one of the more overlooked aspects of the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus. We rightly give so much attention to the cross and to the resurrection of Christ, but less than we should attention to the ascension of Christ. And so we did um, carve out eight weeks for that study, but it's time to move on and we're going to try to finish out the rest of chapter one here in the next two or three of our studies together. Uh, we, where we left off is at the end of verse 11. In fact, what I'll do is I'll reread those three ascension-focused verses starting in verse 9, and then we're going to continue uh, for our study today in verses 12 through 14. But reading from verse 9 of Acts chapter 1, and this is the focus here is, of course, on the Lord Jesus. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up. And a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. All right, so... Jesus has just ascended from their perspective, from their standpoint. I'm, I'm, I'm really referring here to the 11 remaining apostles. And for the first time, in terms of their perspective, their experience, for the first time in three years, really th- three plus years, they are without the immediate personal presence of the Lord Jesus. Now, in a few short days, they're going to have, amazingly, something even better than the immediate personal, physical presence of the Lord Jesus. We've talked about this, but it should be solidified in our perspective. You know, we can consider what could possibly be better in terms of a life experience than the personal, physical, immediate presence of the Lord Jesus. I mean, how many of you, if Jesus himself were to appear in this room this morning, he's not going to, but if he were, 
What an awesome experience that would be. And if you left the church service and later shared with anybody that you knew in your life that you were were interested to pass on what you would experience, you would have a story to tell. Wow, I saw Jesus today. I was with him personally and physically. You would probably describe it as the most amazing experience of your entire life. I'd be shocked if you didn't try to describe it in those terms to someone else. But something soon was going to happen to them that was even better than that. And that is, they were about to be filled with the Holy Spirit in a new and greater way on the day of Pentecost. We know it's even greater because the Lord Jesus himself described it in those terms to them in the Last Supper. It's greater in the sense that Jesus was physically present with them in their immediate vicinity, but the Holy Spirit was going to come and live inside of them. And the Holy Spirit himself is described, at least in one place in Scripture, as the Spirit of Christ. And so you have the Lord Jesus himself in the person represented by the person of the Holy Spirit coming to live inside of them. That's that's an even greater experience than being in the immediate vicinity of that person. But right now, between losing the immediate presence of the Lord Jesus in his ascension and the events that are about to unfold, we know it's exactly 10 days from now. They didn't know that at this point. The Lord had not told them, in 10 days after my ascension, there's going to be the day of Pentecost. And on the day of Pentecost, you're going to be filled with my spirit. What he had told them, look back up. We're still in chapter one of Acts, but look back up here in verses three, four, and five. Let me remind you of what we've already studied. He presented himself alive to them. This is Jesus proving the reality of his physical resurrection to the apostles. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days, 40 days from his resurrection to his ascension, and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them during that 40-day period, He ordered them, meaning they're now under commandment, a very specific commandment that he gave to his disciples. He ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And then this key phrase in terms of a time clue for their understanding and just for I think the the peace of their heart's perspective he doesn't leave them entirely in the dark but he does leave them somewhat in the dark he says it this way you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now now I don't know about you but that that's a little bit too loose for my comfort level I would have probably been at least tempted when he said those words if I was among the 11 the 11 remaining apostles Lord what do you mean not many days from now how many is it going to be and which day is it going to be I prefer this is just my 
orientation. I prefer to know what's going to happen next and when it's going to happen. I like to plan ahead in that sense. I like to have that sense of of being somewhat in charge and in control of my scheduling in that way. But he leaves them somewhat in the dark. Why? It's now they're entering into a period of a test of faith. It's not a long period. We know it will be exactly because from the day of his ascension to the day of Pentecost, it was exactly 10 days. But he doesn't tell them 10 days from now, you're going to be filled with my spirit. On the day of Pentecost, you're going to be filled with my spirit because they all knew that day. It was a special holy day in the, in the Jewish religious calendar established by the law of God and the law of Moses. He just left them with the sense of it's going to happen and it's going to happen soon. It won't be many days from now. So between that event of his ascension and the actual day of Pentecost, they're left with neither the immediate personal physical presence of Jesus nor the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. They're between those two wonderful and amazing experiences of the presence of the Lord. So what do they do now? Well, their natural tendency might be to simply follow the Lord's instructions because they're left somewhat with, you know, we're not sure what to do now, so let's just remind ourselves of what the Lord has instructed us to do. So he tells them, wait there in the city of Jerusalem, and they begin to obey the Lord. So they don't go anywhere. What we see happening in verses 12 through 14 is, uh, there's a key word here in verse 13. When they had entered, they went up, that's entered back into the city of Jerusalem. They went up to the upper room where they were staying. The word staying is in a sense of like, this is an ongoing event of staying. Now, in terms of the upper room, there's some details here in these verses that were focused on 12, 13, and 14 that are not super important for us, but they're interesting to me. I hope they'll be interesting to you. I think the details are given to us in order to just help our perspectives to settle into the the reality of these events. These events are real history. These men were real men and they went through these real life circumstances. These are not legends of ancient history, made up stories to to try to, to direct people's faith in a specific direction without any actual basis in reality. As so many of the religious stories of the various world religions actually are, just legendary stories. So for me, the details are significant because they're tied to real history. So actually, let's go back up to 12 because I skipped over one of the details and let's just go through these verses and look at some of the details. So first it says they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives or the Mount called Olivet. It was known by both terms. So you know the layout. You may never have been. uh, How many of you have actually been to Jerusalem? I know at least Stefan has. Okay, so we've got two or three people that have actually been. I never have been to Jerusalem. I've seen the pictures. I've seen videos. I'm somewhat familiar with the layout. Um, there, are, there are two prominent mountainous areas, one of which is where the city of Jerusalem is actually built. It's on a mount, 
and then there's a valley called the Kidron Valley, and then on the other side of that valley is the Mount of Olives. And we looked at this in some detail when we went through the Gospel of Matthew together, especially in the final chapters of the Gospel of Matthew, and we saw that, for instance, on that day where Jesus gave the great prophecy in Matthew chapter 24 of the events that would unfold in the events of 70 AD, some 40 years in the future from one single generation in the future from when he had proclaimed those things that were going to happen, things that related to the temple in Jerusalem and how that temple was going to be uh, ultimately destroyed and dismantled stone by stone by the Roman legions that came in and reconquered the city of Jerusalem. But when he gave that prophecy, he gave it from the Mount of Olives, looking back across the Kidron Valley at the Temple Mount, where the temple was constructed and the rest of the city of Jerusalem was surrounding the temple. So for his ascension, Jesus had led his disciples out of the city of Jerusalem where they had been gathered for the celebration of the Passover. And they had eaten that Passover meal together that we know as the Last Supper. And at the end of that supper, He led them out of that upper room where they had gathered for this last supper and for their meal together. And he had led them down across the Kidron Valley and up the slopes of the Mount of Olives where, of course, we have the whole scenario of the Garden of Gethsemane where he was later arrested and then led away to his trial and his eventual execution. So, Now, for the ascension, Jesus returned to that exact location, the Mount of Olives. And he led them to the Mount of Olives, and he ascended back to heaven from that mountain, overlooking the city of Jerusalem and overlooking the temple. So, in detail here in verse 12, we simply find out that the disciples now walk back from the Mount of Olives, down through the Kidron Valley, up the slopes to the Temple Mount, and they return to what is called here in verse 13, the upper room. Now, we don't know for sure with any kind of biblical certainty or any kind of archaeological certainty that the upper room where they were staying for this 10-day period between the ascension and Uh, the day of Pentecost, we don't know with certainty that it was the exact same room where Jesus celebrated the Last Supper with his disciples. I'm going to say it's probable and it's most likely that it was the same room. The reason being it's simply described as the upper room, which would tend to indicate if you're continuing the story from the Last Supper, that it's likely the same room where they gathered for that meal. But it's not super important that it's the exact same room, just the likelihood that it is. So they returned to that upper room and were told that they were staying there. Now, it doesn't mean, and we're not meant to read, that they entered into the upper room and for 10 days they never left that room. That they just literally hold up in that room for those 10 days. We know that because if you'll turn back with me to the book of Luke and of course we know and we're going to be in Luke 24 we know that Luke wrote 
not just the Gospel of Luke, but he also wrote the book of Acts. And so we have the same, the same man describing both of these circumstances. And we're going to read here from Luke chapter 24. I'll start reading in verse 50, right at the end of Luke's Gospel. And this is Luke's account of the ascension of Christ. Then he led them out as far as Bethany. Bethany was a a small town, a small village on the far side of the Mount of Olives from Jerusalem. He led them out as far as Bethany and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And then verses 52 and 53 is Luke's simple description of what happens next for the disciples and what filled the 10-day period between his ascension and the day of Pentecost events in Acts chapter 2. Verse 52, and, and they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Now, you know that from our study through Matthew's gospel, that Jesus oftentimes when he was in the city of Jerusalem would go to the temple. He was never allowed to go into the temple proper because he was not of the tribe of Levi and he was not a Levitical priest. The temple proper is the actual building of the temple where only Levitical priests could enter. But he was allowed along with the rest of the community of Israel to go to temple in the sense of going to the outer courtyards, the outside area that was constructed around the temple building proper. And that courtyard area was an area where all of the people of Israel that would come to Jerusalem for the great festivals and the great, the, the great feast days that the Lord had commanded in the law of Moses, they would come to these courtyard, this courtyard area and they would worship the Lord, they would pray there, they would have times of spiritual fellowship there, they would sing psalms they would sing sing hymns unto the lord it was a a place meant to pray and worship the lord and so what we see the disciples doing what the 11 remaining apostles are doing during this 10-day period is they're they're found and these are the only two passages the one that we've already read in acts 1 and the one that we've just read in Luke chapter 24 these are the only two passages that describe what they were doing during this 10-day period So what they were doing was essentially captured by four key words. They were staying in the city of Jerusalem. They were waiting for the day of Pentecost, even though they don't know the event of the outpoured spirit is going to happen on the day of Pentecost. They're waiting for the the fulfillment of the promise of the outpoured spirit of God from heaven. And they are praising God in the temple, and they are praying in the upper room. So most likely the scenario, though we haven't gotten this detail given to us in scripture, I'm just going to give you the the probability of what a day is looking like during this 10-day period for the 11 apostles. Most likely they got up each morning and they went to the temple. They went to the courtyard They assembled there as a group. They met there. They praised God there. They worshiped the Lord there. They prayed together there. 
And then at some time during the day, they left the temple courtyard. They went to the upper room where they would sleep each night. But before going to sleep, they're actively doing something in the upper room on a daily basis for a continuing 10-day time period. And what they're doing there, let's go back to Acts again, just to remind us. In verse 14, all these, and we'll go back through verse 13 and the details of that in a moment. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. So the Luke passage tells us they were daily in the temple courtyard praising the Lord and the Acts passage tells us they were daily in the upper room praying and being devoted to prayer. And the word devoted is simply a, a Greek word that Luke uses which indicates a, a, a commitment, an ongoing commitment to a single focused activity. They were, in a sense, blocking out all the other things they could be doing during this 10-day period, and they were focused in a spiritual way on a responsibility that they felt upon their hearts to pray. And during their time in the temple, their activity is characterized more as praising the Lord. So you have these two things going on for 10 days straight. Now, one of the things that stands out to me One of the things that I think is meant to be noticeable is that while there are other people involved, in fact, we have a total that are identified, and we'll talk about this in just a moment, of 120 that eventually arrive in the upper room. It's a pretty substantial size upper room, at least the size of this room that we're meeting in this morning. Nevertheless, the focus here is primarily on the 11. And these are the same 11 men that were with Jesus in the events that, as I've already talked about tonight, or this morning, the the Last Supper. And at the Last Supper, they eventually finished their their time in the upper room, and I said they, they went across the Kidron Valley, and they found their way as Jesus led them to the Garden of Gethsemane. And you remember the story of the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is there at the Garden of Gethsemane because he is fully aware of what he's about to experience what he's about to go through. He is going to be sacrificing his life in a horrific, torturous death in order to accomplish God's plan of redemption and salvation. And he is compelled to pray before he goes through that experience. But he intentionally takes all of his disciples with him to the garden, and then, interestingly, he makes a division between his disciples and he takes three of them deeper into the garden and leaves them in a second location in the garden and then he goes by himself to an even deeper location of the garden in order to pray and he comes back at a certain point after he's been praying and he finds the three that he left in a second location And how does he find them? You know the story. You remember it well, I'm sure. How does he find the three disciples? What's going on with the three? And the three are Peter, James, and John, three that have a, a special assignment in God's purpose, and that's why they're, in a sense, separated from the rest of the 11. How does he find Peter, James, and John in this circumstance of the garden? They're snoozing. 
It's been a long day. They're worn out. They're tired. Um, they're nodding off. And Jesus has something to say to them. He's not, I don't think he's what we would call ticked off, you know, uh, but he's, he's a, yeah, he's at least miffed. Um, I don't think it's a sinful thing that's going on with him, obviously. But at the same time, it's possible to be in a holy way without sin tainting the expression. It's possible to be disappointed in what someone else is doing or failing to do in a moment of such great significance and importance. And this is a super important moment in his life, and it's a super important moment in their lives as well. And so he finds them sleeping, and he says something to them. Do you remember what he said? Couldn't you, couldn't you be praying for a single hour? Couldn't you be keeping your focus of heart and mind where it should be for a single hour of time? Now, <clears throat> apparently they weren't able to at that point. It, it was... It was one of those things where, and in another circumstance, Jesus said, the, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Now, how many of you, are, this isn't, I'm not going to embarrass anyone because I've experienced this. I'm sure you have as well. How many of you have ever sat down with good intentions? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to really read the Bible this morning. You get up early. You're going to read the Bible. I'm going to, and I'm going to pray as I'm reading the Bible. I'm going to have a really rich, deep devotional time with the Lord. And you start with good intentions and you find yourself somewhere between your good intentions and the fulfillment of those intentions. You find yourself nodding off. Have you ever fallen asleep while you were praying? Have you ever fallen asleep while you were reading the scriptures? I've done it way too many times. So it's not... It's not like super unusual and it's, it's not super terrible what they were doing, but at the same time, it's an evidence and an indicator of a measure of spiritual growth that's still ahead of them. Now we're fast forwarding because the, the, the events of the Garden of Gethsemane were not that long ago, just over 40 days ago that they were in the Garden of Gethsemane and they couldn't pray even a single hour. Now we're fast forwarding just before the day of Pentecost for a 10-day period, how long are the disciples engaged in a devoted, focused way in praising the Lord, time of worship, and in praying to the Lord, time of seriously seeking the Lord? How long are they managing to sustain their focus now without nodding off? when they shouldn't be nodding off. 10 days straight, they maintain their spiritual focus. So some growth has already happened for these men. Now we do know at the end of the Gospel of John, and we'll revisit this when we eventually get to, to uh, Acts chapter two and the events of the day of Pentecost and, and what it meant for the experience of the 11 apostles. We know, though, at the end of the Gospel of John that before the Lord ascended, he appeared to the eleven and he amazingly, interestingly, breathed on them in this one appearance. And when he breathed on them, not to test his breath, so to speak, but he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. 
so the 11 were given in a sense a head start on the events of the day of Pentecost and they already now have a new and deeper and greater experience of the presence of the Holy Spirit in their lives and because they do they're able to sustain 10 days of focused devotion when before they couldn't sustain a single hour of focused devotion I take real encouragement from that difference because their story I mean yes they're apostles and none of us will ever be in that category or exactly at that level but they in a sense represent us in the story and we're meant to take encouragement from them and seek to follow in their footsteps I remember as a brand new believer struggling to even spend an hour in devotion with the Lord like they did in the Garden of Gethsemane. And while at times it's more challenging for my personal self-discipline to sustain devotional relationship with the Lord than it is at other times, nevertheless, between the beginning of my walk with the Lord some over 40 years ago and this present time, I can look back and I see a progression of growth and development and a deepening of my capacity to give the kind of focused attention to what matters most in life that the Lord would have me give. And that's what I see already starting to develop in the hearts of these 11 men. For 10 days, their full day, this is not a vacation for these 11 and it's not a staycation for these 11 this is a spirit we would call it a spiritual retreat and it is a retreat in this sense the lord had given them what we call and we studied it in detail as we finished matthew chapter 28 not too long ago in our studies he had given them what we call the great commission He had said, I am making you responsible. I'm giving you a great blessing, the blessing of my authority and the blessing of the message of salvation. And I want you to take those blessings and I want you to share those blessings with the entire world surrounding you. I want you to take this blessing to every single nation on the face of the earth. And I want you to make disciples from all of those who respond in each one of those nations that receive that message. And so the natural tendency would have been as soon as Jesus ascends and he is is back into heaven, it, it would be only natural for them to get going in the fulfillment of that assignment and to start preaching the gospel to start sharing that message, to get busy with the work of the Great Commission. But for this 10-day period, the Lord doesn't actually want them sharing the gospel with anyone. And it goes a little bit counterproductive to our perspective. Why wouldn't the Lord want them to share the gospel with anyone? He tells them, stay in the city of Jerusalem. They're obedient. We saw back in our gospel studies that the Lord would give them instructions and they weren't always uh, 100% in their, in their following of the Lord's instructions. Sometimes they, 
they stumbled and fell as they were trying to carry out the Lord's instructions. But in this instruction, stay in the city of Jerusalem until the, the Spirit is poured out. They were perfect in their obedience. And not just stay, he said, wait as you're staying, wait in the city until the Holy Spirit is poured out on you. The implication of that instruction of the Lord, wait until the Holy Spirit is poured out, is that yes, you're going to be, you're going to be carrying out the fulfillment of a great commission, but there's something that needs to happen to you first before you are equipped and qualified to actually fulfill that commission. And that thing that needs to happen first is they need to be filled with the Spirit of God. Without that equipment, they're not ready yet to go out and begin the mission. And so they're, they're staying in the city, they're waiting, but while they're waiting, they're not passively waiting. Uh, turn with me, if you would, to the book of Psalms. And I would like us to look at a couple of verses at the beginning. It's a very short psalm, but at the beginning of Psalm one. 23. This is from a, a special group of 15 psalms. David uh, did a study for us through these psalms that were known as the Psalms of Ascent. Interestingly, it's not so much the ascent of the Lord back to heaven that's in focus here, it's the ascent of all of the people of God as three times a year. The Lord would call his covenant people from every corner of Israel, wherever they happened to live, and he would call them to come into his immediate presence, which was represented by his house, which is known as the temple of God, which was constructed, of course, in the city of Jerusalem. So wherever they lived throughout the land of Israel, they were to leave their homes and their dwellings three times a year. It was during the the three appointed special feast days of the Lord. And they were to come to the Lord's house in order to meet the Lord at his home. And as they were journeying from wherever they started to wherever the Lord would uh, meet them at his house, they were to sing songs of worship and praise to the Lord. And the lyrics of those songs of worship and praise were meant to begin to prepare their hearts and minds for the meeting that was going to happen as they arrived in the immediate presence of the Lord. And so they're called the songs of ascent because from whatever location in all of Israel that they were journeying, the, the journey was always described as a journey upward because Again, the temple was built on the Temple Mount. And while physically it wasn't the highest mountain in all of Israel, spiritually in Scripture it's always described as the highest location on planet Earth. Higher even than uh, the highest mountain anywhere else located on the Earth from a spiritual elevation perspective. And so wherever you start, you're moving upwards because, of course, the temple ultimately represents the house of the Lord in heaven itself. So in this particular Psalm of Ascent, Psalm 123, just want to focus our attention on the first two verses. To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. 
Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. There's a a spiritual relationship that's described here in verse 2, and it it was meant to represent the relationship between the Lord and his people. The two roles are master and servant. And the master role, of course, is fulfilled by the Lord himself, and the servant role is fulfilled by his people. And in this scenario, the people are looking in a very specific and focused way in one direction and one direction only, and it's like they have tunnel vision. The servants in this psalm have tunnel vision. You know what I mean by tunnel vision? Where everything other than the specific thing that you're focused on, everything else kind of blacks out, and you're no longer aware of anything else that's going on. You're simply seen and are focused on the one thing that you're looking with great intensity at. And so these servants are looking at the hand of their master and the maidservants, same thing as the eyes of maidservants to the hand of her mistress. Why the focus on the hand as opposed to maybe the face of the master or the face of the mistress? The hand is how the master would give signals in the household to what he wanted the servant to do next. So he's pointing this direction. He's giving a certain symbolic hand signal to indicate this is what he wants to happen next. And so a good servant is one that is looking at the master, but looking at the master in a very like immediately active kind of perspective of as soon as I get the signal, I'm in go mode. But until I get the signal, I'm in wait mode. And that's exactly, I think, the kind of waiting that the apostles were engaged in for this 10-day period between the ascension and the day of Pentecost. They are ready to enter into go mode. Go mode is going to be the fulfillment of the Great Commission. But they're waiting for a signal from the hand of the master. And the signal they're waiting for, of course, is the day of Pentecost. They don't know, again, it's going to be on that specific day, but they're waiting for the experience that's going to happen on the day of Pentecost where God the Father is going to fulfill his promise by giving to his son the right and the authority and the power to pour out his Holy Spirit upon his gathered disciples there in that upper room. And when that happens, everything in the story of what we call the church is going to change from that moment forward. Now let's head back to Acts chapter one and pick up the remaining details that I haven't covered yet. Just a couple of more things here. So verse 12 again, they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. The Sabbath day's journey is simply that there was a rule and it was based, kind of loosely based, but it was by this time it it was a tradition among the Jewish leadership that was based upon principles from God's law, not exactly commanded in God's law. And that was on the Sabbath day where there was to be no work done 
Uh, the tradition was no righteous Israelite could travel more than 2,000 cubits on the Sabbath day because any more than 2,000 cubits in your journey would now equal work and you were not supposed to work at all on the Sabbath day. 2,000 cubits equaled approximately, in our measurement, three quarters of a mile. So it's just letting us know that their journey back to Jerusalem was not that long, not that far, uh, however long it would take a person to walk about three quarters of a mile. And so they entered into the upper room, most likely, not with certainty again, the same upper room from the Lord's Supper. And we have a list of the apostles that are given to us. Of course, there's only 11 names here because Judas Iscariot has committed suicide. And we're going to see in the remainder of Acts chapter 1 the uh, decision that the apostles make to to uh, choose a replacement for him. We're not quite that far yet, but we'll be focused on that in our next study in a couple of weeks. And then verse 14. All these, so the 11 apostles, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. Now this phrase, one accord, is not an unimportant phrase, and it's, it's not just a, a minor detail. They're praying for 10 days, But these 11, and they're not alone, we're going to see a total of 120 are there in the upper room eventually, but all of them are praying with one accord. This is a a phrase that simply emphasizes the degree of true spiritual unity that was represented in their times of prayer, and I'm sure the same applied to their worship time during the day as they would go to the temple and praise the Lord in a more public uh, setting. Um, You can keep your place here in Acts. Let me just read to you, though, from Ephesians chapter 4. I'm reading the first six verses of Ephesians 4. This is describing the value the Lord places on true spiritual unity among his people what this one accord concept really represents. Paul writes to the Ephesian church, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience. Right now what he's doing is he's describing what's necessary for a group of people uh, as large as 120 individuals what's necessary for that group to actually function in a one accord kind of way with one another. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. The emphasis there is we don't create this sense of unity among us. It's something that can only be created by our shared experience of being saved by the Lord and being filled with his Holy Spirit. So the Lord himself is the one who creates unity among his people. But we do have a responsibility, as Paul describes it here, to, as Paul says, maintain the unity of the Spirit. So you and I, with all of our best efforts, we can't create unity between ourselves, but we can affect in a negative way the unity that God is wanting to maintain between us. Eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace, there is one body 
and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. That's what it means to be joined together and praying together, worshiping together in one accord. So back to the Acts passage. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. Again, praying for 10 days straight. Together with the women, Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. So now we have a mixed group. It's not just the 11 in the upper room. I said there's a total of 120, but there's specific ones that are identified for us. So together with the women, Luke expects for us to know and understand somewhat of who he's talking about when he says together with the women. My mind immediately goes, which women? Who are you talking about? Uh, Earlier in Luke's gospel, and I'll just read this, you don't have to turn there with me, but if you're taking notes and you want to look this up later, I'm going to be reading from Luke chapter 8. Just a couple of verses here. Verses 2 and 3. Actually, I'll read one through three. Soon after he went through the cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God and the 12 were with him and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene from whom seven demons had gone out and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager and Susanna and many others who provided for them out of their means. And then also this passage from uh, Luke 24. And this is, uh, excuse me, Luke 23. This is uh, verse 49. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. That's stood at a distance at the crucifixion. So there's a group of women that were in the vicinity of the apostolic band, the discipleship band of Jesus and his disciples throughout the three years of his public ministry. And they were there in a supportive way. They were there for their own spiritual benefit, but they were there in a supportive way as they also actually provided for some of the financial needs of the discipleship group. That same group of women have now joined the 11 in the upper room and they've joined them in prayer. And they're specifically mentioned here by Luke. He wants to make sure we understand um, their ongoing commitment and involvement in the work of the Lord. And then Mary is mentioned here, and it's, of course, Mary. She's identified as the mother of Jesus. Interestingly, you know, you know Mary is, is mentioned in the gospel accounts, but this is here in Acts chapter 1, verse 14. This is the last mention of Mary in Scripture. She's never mentioned again in any of the rest of the book of Acts after chapter 1. She's never mentioned again in any of the letters to the churches. It's one of the sad developments of the history of of various expressions of Christianity that the Roman Catholic Church has taken Mary and made too much of a focus on her. She's an honorable woman. 
She was chosen by God for a special purpose to be in physical terms the mother of the Son of God as he entered into the world in his incarnation. But what you see, Mary, in the very last snapshot of her involvement in the work of the Lord as it's unfolding on earth, what you see Mary doing is what? What is she doing? Why is she mentioned? What are they all doing during this 10-day period? They are praying. And they're devoted to prayer. And so we see Mary praying and being devoted to prayer. In the Roman Catholic Church, Mary becomes the object of prayer. Meaning Catholics are encouraged to pray to Mary in the praying of the rosary. That, of course, is not a biblical principle. It's not a biblical practice. And you don't see any of the apostles or the rest of the assembled group there in the upper room as Mary sinning in their midst, they're not praying to her. She is joining them in praying appropriately to God in the name of her son, the Lord Jesus. And then his brothers are mentioned. And we focused on this in our study through Matthew, so I, won't, I don't want to take too much time here. But these are literally what we would call the half-brothers of Jesus. They share... They share a relationship to Jesus because they have the same mother. And covenantally, they have the same natural father who is Joseph. But Jesus, of course, was not born of the seed of Joseph. He was born of the overshadowing power and presence of the Holy Spirit in what event that we call the virgin birth. And so these four men who are identified elsewhere in the New Testament are now part of this group. Two of those four brothers of Jesus later play a very significant role in the life of the early church. One of which is James, who later writes the book of James. And when we eventually get to Acts chapter 15, we're going to see he plays the single most important leadership role in the church in Jerusalem for all of the early years of the development of that church. And then the second of the four brothers that later had a very significant assignment from the Lord is Jude, who was the the Greek form of the name is Jude, and the Hebrew form of the name is Judas. But later, Jude writes what we call the book of Jude right toward the end of the New Testament. So all of these are together. We've got the 11 apostles. We've got the women that had joined the ministry of the Lord Jesus through his three years of public ministry. We've got Mary, the mother of Jesus. And we have got the four brothers of Jesus. And others on top of those are also joining them in the upper room. A total of 120. Now, why is the number 120 significant? It's interesting but in, in um, Jewish tradition, in order to start a new town, in order to start a new community of Jewish people as they, would, as they would travel to different locations and form new towns, the requirement in Jewish tradition was you, you were needing 120 males to be present in order to form a new community. And so we have 120 here that are forming, in a sense, a new spiritual community. It's the community of what we now call the church. But they're not all 120 males. 
you have a total of 120 souls starting this new community, but there is a mixture, as Luke is emphasizing, of both males and females. Why is that important? It's demonstrating that in the new covenant, women are being exalted to a new and prominent spiritual place in the spiritual community of God's people. They now are standing in that sense on equal footing with the males. Not so much in a leadership role as we see evidence here and throughout the rest of the book of Acts, but in a true significant member of the new spiritual community of the church that God is forming. So they spend these 10 days focused in prayer. What's interesting is that the Lord had commanded them to stay in the city of Jerusalem for this 10-day period. He had commanded them to wait until the outpoured spirit which will take place on the day of Pentecost. But he didn't command them to pray for those 10 days, and yet they did. So this is not just prayer of obedience. This is prayer of heart devotion to the things that they have experienced and to the one that has just ascended back to heaven. And as I mentioned earlier, the same individuals that struggled to pray for a single hour are now praying in a focused and devoted way for 10 days straight. Now, prayer is going to play a very important role throughout the rest of the book of Acts, and this is just the first occurrence that we see in our study of the book of Acts. There's a total of of 28 chapters in the book of Acts. And you'll see that prayer is specifically focused on 31 times in the book of Acts. And out of 28 chapters, 20 chapters capture a moment of prayer for us. To show us, I think, that the story, because you understand the book of Acts is the story of the, the beginning of this new spiritual community of the church that God is establishing in the earth, that prayer is an essential element in the life of that community, in the life of that church. My question is for you to consider, you've got this upper room, you've got these 120 waiting, what do you think the attendance was like in this prayer meeting that went on for 10 days? You've got 120, what do you think the attendance was like? You think it was you think it was consistent? Do you think it was committed or do you think it was kind of well, you know, some days they showed up out of the 10. We're you know, we're on day 7 now. You know how things can be new new and exciting on day 1. Maybe day 2, maybe even day 3. We're on day 7 now and we've been praying for 6 days. Maybe I'll just kind of uh, take care of some other business. Maybe I'll take a break. Maybe I'll go do some shopping. Maybe I'll go do something, anything else other than spend the day praying with the other 119 that are there. I think the attendance in this particular case was perfect attendance. I think all of them were there and all of them were there consistently. Now, I get it. This was a special event never to be repeated in exactly this way in all of church history to follow. But I do think there's something we're meant to gain from this, and that is the significance, the priority, the importance of prayer in the life of the church. And it's kind of a running joke through Christianity, through church life, 
that prayer meetings in churches are typically the least attended meetings in the life of a church. You know, you throw a concert and you get good attendance. You know, you you have a really intriguing study in the book of Revelation and you're going to get good attendance. And then you say, let's get together and just pray. And suddenly people have other things to do and other priorities to pursue. Now, I, I get it. There are other things to do in our lives and there are other priorities for us to focus on. But I do think it's important for us to gain from this passage and the others that we'll see running throughout the book of Acts in our study ahead of us the great spiritual significance of the Lord's call to us as his people to pray. Let me finish with this quote from Matthew Henry, one of the great uh, teachers from an, in the church from an earlier generation. It's a short quote. When God intends great mercy for his people, the first thing he does is to set them praying. And he certainly intended great mercy for his people in the day of Pentecost, And the first thing he did was he, not by commandment, by just influencing them, just working in them, he set them for 10 days straight to praying. And then the whole world was changed following the day of Pentecost. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for your word and the way that you find to speak to each one of our hearts from the pages of your book. I pray that uh, you would speak something to each heart here today from the portion that we have focused on. I pray that we would gain the full benefit of what you were doing in the lives of the 11, the lives of the others of the 120 that were gathered for those 10 days in that upper room. And we're also praising you in the temple courtyard each day of those 10. And I pray that we would become and grow into being more like them. I thank you, Lord, in the name of your Son. Amen. All right.